And so tonight, let us examine it. Notice, first of all, in the last three verses of Isaiah 52, here is what I have called astonishment. As we go through point by point, I want to do something I normally do not do. I want to read all of the verses as the message there is will simply develop the text because there's so much rich within the text. We will not be able to exhaust it. Beginning with verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Here is astonishment. In the early part of verse 13, it says that he will prosper, or as another translation it says, he will deal wisely. And can it not be said of Jesus Christ that everything that he touched, from the brief glimpse we have of him at age 12 to an exhaustive study of three years' ministry that the gospel zero in on days and explain what he did, can it not be said of him that he dealt wisely and he prospered? The wisdom of God is foolishness to men. And very often... You and I are prone to compromise when we know that compromise is wrong because we think it is necessary to compromise in the name of being practical. We think it is necessary to be successful to cultivate the greatest number of people possible, to draw within the realm of our influence the broadest spectrum of humanity. And yet it seems as we watch Jesus Christ, whom the Scriptures say dealt wisely and prospered, that the ministry of Jesus from the time of its peak to the time of the cross was a constant effort to dissuade people who were not serious about Him from following Him. At the height of His public ministry, as recorded in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had sent the disciples away and dispersed the crowds and gone up on the mountainside to pray at night. And in the middle of the night, he came walking on the water to the boat that the disciples were in. And the next day, he showed up at Capernaum and the crowds on the other side of the lake, meanwhile, didn't know where he was. But someone had come back to them and said, why, that teacher is at Capernaum. And so thousands of them piled in their boat. They thought they'd found a free lifetime meal ticket. They came to Jesus and said, Master, why are you avoiding us? Show us signs and wonders. Bless us. And they were really saying, give us something to eat. Well, no preacher probably who ever lived except Jesus Christ could have acted as he did at that time. But he said, you do not seek me because of my words, but because of the bread that I gave you and I will feed you no more. And it is reported at this time that many, not of the great crowds, but many of his disciples went back from following him for they too could not understand how it was he would turn away public support. And at that point, John tells us Jesus was down to 12. 
from thousands down to twelve. Now I would remind you that if you desire to serve God and if you desire for our church to serve God, we must at all times in great love and compassion reach out to all people. But we must likewise build everything that we do uncompromisingly and unapologetically on the Word of God. Jesus Christ wanted to see who would stick with Him. We wring our hands over numbers sometimes in churches and in great denominations like our convention. We wonder what's going to happen. Where are the people? And Jesus Christ turned the world upside down with a dozen men. I say Jesus dealt wisely. Jesus prospered in the sight of God and let us together commit ourselves to the Word and let those of us who will obey the Word go forward to the glory of God. In reading the book of Numbers today, in my Bible readings, I found there that as late as 40 years after Israel left Egypt, they were still being plagued by the mixed multitudes that had tied onto their coattails and left Egypt with them. And I read with joy and an awesome sense of responsibility that Moses did not let the mixed multitude run the people of God. Regardless of who liked it, Moses followed and obeyed and built on the Word. And so must we do if we would be like Christ, of whom the Scriptures testify, He dealt wisely and He prospered. Then in the latter part of verse 13, it says, He, was, uh, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And Christ could not be concealed. When he spoke to a one possessed by demons, the demons cried out in honor of him and called him by name, Jesus, thou son of the most high God. But then quite hard to understand, the conversation turns. He will prosper. He will deal wisely. He will be exhaust, exalted. But then... Isaiah says, he will be marred beyond any kind of human recognition. This is what the Jews could not understand. You see, Jesus Christ was a puzzle to them. They felt so sorry for themselves as a nation, they had decided that the Messiah would be the one who was exalted, but they were the ones who were abased. They had decided that the servant of the Lord would kill all the Romans and run the rest of them back to Italy. But that they were the ones who would suffer on behalf of the Lord. Too blind to realize that the only reason they ever suffered was because of their own sinfulness. And the servant of the Lord suffered for his righteousness. And Isaiah says he was marred beyond recognition. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, quoting him, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. He was marred beyond recognition. If Isaiah can be believed, if a knowledge of the Roman scourging can be trusted, Jesus would not have been identified by anybody who knew him unless they had followed him to the cross. Then it says, 
in verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. We've talked of the metaphor of sprinkling before. Every day when the sacrifices were, all, were offered, a portion of the blood of the sacrifice was gathered in a bowl and the priest on behalf of the sins of the people would take hyssop and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar as a remembrance that blood had indeed been shed for the forgiveness of sins. This sprinkling was the blood of his sacrifice that paid for the sins of all men. You see, in God's perfect universe, a broken law required punishment. It still does. And sin worthy of death requires that blood be shed in order for forgiveness to be given. Indeed, the writer to Hebrews, capsulizing the Old Testament teaching, says without shedding of blood is no remission of sin. And he himself had his blood sprinkled at an eternal altar. Here is astonishment to the reader that the one who prospered, that the one who was exalted would be marred and would be killed and his blood sprinkled at the altar. Then notice in the first three verses of chapter 53, here is what I have called anonymity. He was anonymous in large measure. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot (coughs) and like a root out of dry ground. He has no no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Notice in verse 1, here is unbelief. Who has believed our message? Isaiah foresaw the rejection of the Jews, uh, their rejection of the idea that the Messiah would suffer. Who has believed our message, he says? To whom has God fully revealed himself? Israel indeed did not believe that God himself would take human form and become a sacrifice for their sins. In verse 2, we read that he was unknown. For he grew up as a tender shoot, uh, like a root out of dry ground. And, And Isaiah says there was nothing about him that if you looked at him would attract you to him. There was nothing in his appearance that made you think this was the Messiah. This was God. This was a special and a spectacular and a wonderful man. There was nothing about him like that. But God knew him. God knew him and God honored him. And there is a lesson to be learned here parenthetically for all of the people of God. I guess the most common emotion we feel prompted by the devil is the emotion that nobody really knows, cares, or understands, or appreciates what we do. But I want to tell you that God knows. God knows. Jesus said, whoever allows himself to be humbled shall be exalted, but whoever exalts himself shall be abased and brought down low. He was unknown, but God knew him. He did not come in a royal palace. 
He was not heralded with the fanfare of a human king and a parade in a great city and a bed in a palace. But God sent a heavenly choir to herald his birth, though he lay anonymous and unknown in the manger of a stable. You see, the magnetism of Jesus Christ was not in his human features, for there were no trappings of royalty around him. Then verse 3, not only was he uh, unknown, and not only was there unbelief, but he was unloved. For verse 3 says he was despised and forsaken of men. You know, it's amazing to me that you and I as Christians very often expect a road of exaltation and an experience of, of honor and recognition when we wholeheartedly follow Jesus. But it was our Lord who said, Woe be unto you when all men speak well of you. It was our Lord who said, If the world hath hated me, it will hate you also, for the servant is not greater than his master. He was unloved. He was a man of sorrows, a man of pain. He was acquainted with grief. And remember that it was voluntary that he did it because he wanted to on our behalf. I think probably his greatest grief was the rejection of those for whom he was willing to lay down his life. And then again in verses 4 to 6, here is what I have called anguish, astonishment, anonymity. Here is anguish. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging or his stripes, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here truly is anguish. Nine verses that we deal with tonight from chapter 53. In these nine verses, twelve times it is stated that he died for us. Twelve times in nine verses. Here indeed is the gospel long before it happened. Here indeed is the truth that he did it for others. In verse 4 we are told it is voluntary. The structure of the Hebrew words where it says, He himself bore our griefs and our sorrows. He carried, indicated was something that he did of his own will. He picked up our sorrows. He willingly let our griefs be put on him. He carried them of his own free will. It was voluntary that he did it for us. And to the human mentality, it seemed natural to assume that he deserved everything he was getting. The Jews assumed that anyone who died a criminal's death was a criminal. That was just how simple they thought. 
And Isaiah, as he watched this all happen before it happened, he said, it seemed even to me that he was stricken, that he was smitten of God. Then in verses 5 and 6, this anguish, this suffering was voluntary, but it was vicarious. Now, vicarious is just a 35-cent theological word that means he was our substitute. He took our place. He stood in on behalf of us. God laid all of our sins on him. God laid all of your sins on Jesus. Remember that God had to be the one who dealt with sin. But remember also that only a spotless sacrifice, only a sacrifice like us, yet without our sin, could be offered and pay an eternal price for our sins. And there was nobody available to be that except God Himself. And so God put skin on and became a man. I recall the day less than two years ago when the reality I want to try to share with you gripped me for the first time. It was one of the most deep and wondrous experiences with the Lord that I've ever had. I only wish that I could convey it more fully to you. Remember that John tells us in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the same was in the beginning with God and so forth and so on. And we know that in a way we cannot understand though Jesus Christ became a man there was never a time in His human life during which He was not in full communion with His Father. Jesus said to his disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said to his disciples, I and the Father are one. And there at Calvary, in a way that defies our understanding, God at one and the same time led the eternal Lamb to the altar of sacrifice. But the Lamb was His own flesh and His own blood. The Lamb cohabited with Him in His soul, and the Lamb was one with Him. And there at Calvary, God killed the sacrifice. I recall when I was in college certain theologians, so-called, came up with an approach to theology called God is dead. Friends, God is not dead, but God has died. God endured the anguish of scourging. Not a man, God endured it. God endured the agony of spikes driven through His hands and His feet. But there came a moment when God could no longer stand beside Jesus. For God is righteous. God is pure. God cannot be sin. God cannot touch sin. God cannot look upon sin. There at the cross, 
in the moment that the weight of your sin and mine was laid on Jesus, God not only turned His back, but God, as only He could do, tore Himself in pieces. Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the depth of anguish that humanity will never touch, even in eternity, to understand it. For at the cross when Christ, who knew no sin, as Paul writes, became sin itself, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, God literally tore Himself into pieces to buy us. Here indeed is anguish. If you were looking at a ledger in verse 6, you would see two debits and one credit. For we are told that all we like sheep have gone astray. That's a debit. Every one of us has gone our own way. Another debit. Each of us has turned aside to his own way. But then across the ledger sheet in bold letters written from a pen dipped in blood, you would see But all of our guilt was laid on him. Here indeed is anguish beyond our imagination. Then in verses 7 to 9, here is what I have called affliction. It is merely an expanded explanation of what he went through internally. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before the shearers so he did not even open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In verse 7, notice that he was silent. I knew a man once who used to say, If you throw a rock at a pack of dogs and one yells, which one is it? Why, it's the one that was hit. I've been reminded of that multiple thousands of times in my own life and in the ministry. And yet, even though he suffered for no reason and he was afflicted through no guilt he did not even open his mouth in anguish, in pain or in reply or retaliation he was silent in his endurance this passage reminds of John 1 29 when John who by virtue of his background very likely had memorized the scroll of Isaiah saw Jesus coming over the hill toward Jordan and God told him who it was and he said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I would remind you that the only outcrying of Jesus was for the sins of his executioners. He only cried out in anguish that they might be forgiven, but he endured the suffering and the shame in silence. In verse 8, it is clearly stated that he was taken away unjustly. For here we find linked the concepts of oppression and judgment. In verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. The condemnation of Jesus Christ was the greatest atrocity in the history of jurisprudence. In the Roman Empire, there were very strict laws that guarded the rights of a criminal. Their laws were as strict, if not stricter, than ours are today to ensure the rights of the accused. In the Roman Empire, it was absolutely against the law to have a trial at night. And yet, if you will read the Gospels, you will discover that five times at night in an empire where it was against the law to have a trial at night, Jesus Christ was tried for supposed crimes. He was taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas and then to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod and Herod sent him back to Pilate and by dawn he was condemned to death. It was nothing but judicial murder. You know, as we read the Gospels, we are caught up in the magnitude of all this going on. But notice the latter part of verse 8 says, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of the people that needed the punishment? And we see that in the Gospels. For no sooner was he nailed to the cross and pronounced dead than the Pharisees went their way and thought they were through with him. It was no big deal. It was over. History tells us that less than five years before Jesus, a so-called Messiah had been put to death on a Roman cross. And while history was peaking to a time that would divide it into two pieces so that all nations of the earth number their time by A.D., by B.C. and A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord, Anna Domini. While all of that was going on, they were home glad to be rid of a minor, unimportant troublemaker. Then in verse 9, Verse 9 is the thing that I think would convince me beyond any question if I were a cynic and a skeptic of the veracity, the truth of the Bible. For in verse 9 it says this. Notice, now how could anybody mistake this? I'll tell you the the time I decided to get a lot more conservative and turn my theology toward the, uh, the authority of the Bible was when I began to read liberal commentators who told me that verse 9 was a coincidence. Now, in Rome, a convicted and executed criminal would have been buried in a publicly owned mass grave anonymously with other criminals. 
And verse 9 says, He was assigned a grave with wicked men. Semicolon. Yet, with a rich man in his death. Jesus Christ was assigned one of those unmarked holes in the potter's field that belonged to Rome. But a godly man who sat on the Sanhedrin named Joseph from Arimathea went to Pilate and begged his body. Joseph was a wealthy man, wealthy enough to have bought a garden in the Jerusalem area and prepared himself a grave before his death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but in his death he was laid in a rich man's tomb. Does that sound like coincidence to you? Not likely. Not likely. You know, it is interesting to read the Midrash and some of the teachings of the ancient Jewish rabbis as they try to explain this passage. They will not accept the only way it could ever have come true, which was in the death of Jesus Christ. Here is the most influential piece of poetry that has ever been written. Here is astonishment and anonymity. Here is anguish. Here is affliction. That God would kill His Son so that you might be saved. I'm glad that Isaiah, as we look to the weeks ahead, does not leave it here. We deal with his exaltation, with his coronation, with his reign, with the kingdom we shall share with him. But before we leave the Mount of Calvary, I wonder tonight if you would go there and ask God to pull back the curtain just a little and let you understand what it means that he did it for you. He did it for you. If you know what it is to love a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife and to prize their life and their well-being far beyond your own, consider how great was the love of the Father that led him to allow the Son to go freely and voluntarily to the cross. And then remember how Paul says, Shall not he who spared not his own Son with him also freely give us all things? May we pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us enough of your word and enough of your spirit to allow us to see just the corner, just the edge of your hurt, your sorrow, and the grief that it brought to your heart when Jesus went to Calvary. Lord, I can review my life day by day Lord, I'm ashamed that Jesus died for the product that is often produced through me.
Lord, I cannot imagine the anguish of losing a child, much less when I allowed it and participated in it. I just ask that you would help us to understand just how much you love us. Just how much you love countless others that you want us to touch. Draw from us tonight by the vision of Calvary the kind of commitment that will change our lives. I thank you that you will. I thank you right now for having your way in advance in the life of every worshiper. I claim it and praise you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight we sing hymn 187, Just As I Am, with an awareness that when God spilled blood at the altar of eternity, He spilled the blood of a spotless lamb. But when we come, the only requirement is that we come. I wonder tonight as we let God deal with us one day at a time is your life worth what God had to pay to buy it tonight you may come to trust this one who died in your place and be saved you may come to invest your life in the church sensing that God wants you active and serving this one who has already bought you by his blood Or you as a Christian may come simply, publicly, proudly to kneel and pray in a fresh commitment, in a praise and thanksgiving to God for what He has done and a new commitment to be worth that price every day. Whatever God would have you do, do it very quickly. Do it proudly. Who will be first as we stand to sing, just as I am.